We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Acts chapter 8. If you remember at the end of last week's message, what we had was the man named Stephen, a deacon, um, who had been um, doing miracles and spreading the gospel, was falsely accused of heresy and then brought on trial before the council, um, and, and they paid people, they, they brought people in and convinced them to lie, they um, made this big scheme to try to come against him, and they said he was teaching heresy, and so he went into this long biblical theology of why what he was saying was not heresy, that, that the presence of God is not confined to the temple in Jerusalem. Right, that God's presence was not confined there, was not trapped there, but his presence was with, was with his people wherever they went, and his presence throughout all of history had gone beyond the temple and beyond um, Israel and beyond the Jews, and had gone out to the pagans in pagan lands, drawing them to himself. And that Jesus had even said, um, I want you to be my witnesses in Judea, uh, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Like, he's giving this mandate to go forth into the pagan lands and into the, the nations, away from the temple and away from Israel, into the other lands to call people to faith in Christ. And wherever they go to do this, the presence of God will be because the presence of God is with his people. Right, and so as he says this and as he teaches this, as he reminds them of this, they get really angry and they drag him out and they stone him to death and kill him. And when this happens, there's a man overseeing this named Saul. And Saul um, begins to unleash a um, great persecution on all of Jerusalem. So he's going house to house of Christians, dragging dads and husbands and wives and moms out of the houses, imprisoning them and killing them for their faith in Jesus. And it says that the church fled. Right? Thousands of Christians flee Jerusalem and run out into the countryside, into other cities, and the apostles stay in Jerusalem. But as they flee, as these new Christians flee, they don't flee in fear and silence, but they flee preaching the gospel of Jesus to people. So as they find themselves as refugees relocating to new places, they go into new neighborhoods and they talk about Jesus in their neighborhoods. And they go into new workplaces and they talk about Jesus in their workplaces. And they go into markets for business and they talk about Jesus in the markets for the business. And the gospel spreading to, the, to Judea and Jerusalem, uh, Samaria and to the ends of the earth, not first through professional apostles, but through ordinary Christians urged out through suffering and opposition. And the gospel goes forth to the nations through this, as Jesus said that it would. Today, we pick up this story as the gospel has gone forth specifically to the place of Samaria, right where Jesus said it would go. There's this man by the name of Philip, another deacon, and Philip is the one who takes the gospel to Samaria to share there. And we're going to see today in two scenes um, a story of Philip's life. We're going to see Philip in Samaria sharing Jesus there. And we're going to see Philip in the desert sharing Jesus there with one man. Sharing Jesus in a city with hundreds and thousands and sharing Jesus in the desert with one man. And as we see him doing this, we're going to notice a drastic difference in the response of both of these people. And so let's begin in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Still had my Bible turned to another passage from the last service. Let me get there. Here we go. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits 
crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now, the Samaritans were thought of as, uh, you could say, heretical Jews. They, they claimed to believe and worship the same God that the Jews did, but, but they didn't receive the whole Old Testament. They only believed in the Pentateuch, and they didn't worship at the temple they, in Jerusalem. They worshiped at their own temple on the mountain. They had their own way of doing things that didn't jive with the Jewish way of doing things, and the Jews despised them for, for being heretics. They despised them for not being as faithful as they were. And the Samaritans despised the Jews for being self-righteous. Right? These are people that the Jews didn't communicate with, didn't have relationship with. In fact, we see in John chapter 4 the story of Jesus walking through Samaria with his men, with his disciples. And he stops at a well in the middle of the day, and he sends his disciples into the city to get food. And there at the well in the middle of the day, a woman comes out to the well, all alone, by herself, no one with her. And when she comes, Jesus says, hey, would you give me some water? And she says, who are you, a Jewish man, to ask me, a Samaritan woman, for water? And Jesus said, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for living water. This conversation progresses until Jesus ends up asking her about herself. And and then he ends up telling her about herself. He says, you're you're right, you're not married to the man you're living with. You're you're in sin there. and, And you've had many husbands. And you're an outcast of your culture. That's why you're here at the well in the middle of the day. No one with you. And she puts faith in Jesus, but not before this question. She asks him this. She says, we have long worshipped, we, the Samaritans, have long worshipped on this mountain, but you, the Jews, say we must worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus responded to her this way. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This sounds very similar to what, um, what Stephen was proclaiming, right? There's coming a time, and the time is here, when you don't have to come to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God. His presence is not confined there. You worship him in spirit and truth wherever you are. And so Jesus prophesies to this woman, this time is coming and has now come. And now Philip shows up in Samaria to tell them about Jesus. And when he tells them about Jesus, there is a revival that breaks out in Samaria. Like these Samaritan heretics begin to believe in Jesus and put their faith in him. They're coming uh, by the droves, by the tens and the hundreds to salvation. Like there's, there's people who are sick and lame being healed. And there's people who have evil spirits. They're they're demon-possessed, and the spirits are being cast out of them. And people are coming in faith, and it says this. It says, and there was much joy in all the city. The idea that we get is that before Jesus, they were not in a place of joy. And they meet Jesus, and they find joy. They, They were indwelled by spirits and not living in joy. And then they are indwelled by Christ, and they're filled with much joy. So this is the scene taking place, revival happening. And into this, we meet this man by the name of Simon. Look at chapter 8, verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. 
And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So this man named Philip is a magician, right, doing magic. So some would say he's doing tricks. Others would say perhaps by the power of, of one of these unclean spirits, evil power. I tend to go with the latter there. But for some way, he's doing a magic to such a degree that from the least to the greatest in the city, they are all following him, and they call him the one with the great power of God. Right? I mean, they are looking, he's the celebrity, this man of power that the crowds chase after, and they listen to, and he has influence, and he has power, and he has money because of this. Magicians use their magic to make money. And so he sees what's going on. And there's crowds of people who have seen what Philip has been doing with miracles, and they've heard the gospel he's been proclaiming, and they stop following Simon, and they start following Philip. They become followers of Jesus, and they're even baptized into the faith. And then Simon sees what's going on, and Simon believes, it says, and he trusts Jesus and, and, and is baptized as well. And then it says, and he followed Philip around because he was amazed at the miracles he was doing. Sorry, he's like inquisitive of this. He's wondering what is going on with this. Let's look on. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of hands of the apostles, he offered them money saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages and to the Samaritans. So Peter and John, the church in Jerusalem, hear about what's happening in Samaria, and the church sends Peter and John to Samaria to, to see what's happening, to celebrate what's happening, to affirm what's happening. And when they get there, they find that the new believers in Samaria don't yet have the Holy Spirit, and so they pray for them, lay hands on them, and it's like another day of Pentecost that happened in Jerusalem, but here it happens upon the Samaritans. And when they lay hands on them and pray for them, the Spirit of God falls upon them, and they're filled with the Spirit. Simon, who's been following all of this around, sees this taking place, and he is intrigued. He's never seen this type of power, the type of power the Spirit brings, nor has he seen the type of power to give that power away. And so he comes to Peter and John, and he goes, hey, here's my money. Like, how much do you want for me to buy this power to do this, what you're doing? And Peter does not respond well. Not well for Simon. He doesn't respond gently. It's not calmly. He actually brings a stern rebuke to him. 
His words could be interpreted as to hell with you and your money. To hell with you and your money. You have nothing to bring here. Don't bring your money. Don't bring your power. Don't bring your celebrity. Don't bring your influence. None of that can purchase the presence or the power of God. You think you have all of this great influence and you have all of this power because all these people follow you. You've made all of this money off of that but your money and your power and your influence is no good at the feet of the cross. You come empty-handed or you don't come at all. That's in essence what Peter's telling him. You have to come with nothing, not with what you have. And then he says, I, I plead with you, go pray and ask God to forgive you. I'm not sure he will. And guys, look, this, this part of the story ends without telling us what actually happens to Simon. We don't know if he actually repents. It doesn't tell us he does. It tells us that rather than him repenting, as Peter told him to do, he actually asks Peter and John to pray on his behalf that the consequences won't happen. But it never says he repents of his sin in his heart. And so we're left wondering, is he even a believer in the first place? And if he is, did he perish in his sin? But what we get to this point is this. Philip's shown up in Samaria, filled with the power of the Spirit. He proclaims Jesus to the Samaritans, and in the hundreds they come to faith. There's miracles, and there's demons being cast out, and there's amazing things going on there in Samaria. And it's not because any of them had anything to bring, to buy it, to earn it. It's because they simply trusted in faith in Christ, and Christ saved them. And the church is multiplying and growing. Now, this great revival is breaking out. Uh, in a sense, Philip is like, um, he, he's come, he's brought the gospel, he's doing great things. I mean, this is like the talk of the city. The news is spread all the way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's come, the news is spreading even further. They now have the Holy Spirit. Like, there's celebration going on. In the midst of all of this, God sends a messenger, an angel to Philip, and he gives him a very odd word. He says, Philip, leave all of this and go walk on a desert road. He doesn't tell him why. He doesn't tell him what's going to happen when he gets there. He just says, Philip, leave all of this excitement of the movement of God here in this city and go to a desert road. He's going to leave the hundreds and the thousands who are coming to faith to go find one man in the desert on a chariot. Let's pick it up. Verse 26. We're going to read through the end of the chapter and then come back and look at it. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and he was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, 
About whom, I ask, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And they were, as, as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. And Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed, as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So God shows up to Philip, and he says, I want you to go to a desert road. I want us to pay attention briefly to, to Philip in this moment, and then I want us to land on the eunuch in this story. When God shows up to Philip, who's in the midst of this great revival, and says, hey, um, no explanation, but I need you to leave all of this, and I need you to go to a desert place, Philip's response was, yes. The humility and the obedience in his heart to follow where God led him, despite it leading him someplace that was drier, hotter, and much less exciting, was really, really inspiring to me. Beautiful. This message of just obedience. And so he goes, and he gets to the road, and when he gets to the road, the Spirit of God prompts, gives a prompt in his heart and goes, see that chariot? Look at that chariot. I, I want you to go to that chariot and talk to that person. So in the middle of the day in the desert, Philip takes off running across the sand and catches up with the chariot. And he catches up with the chariot, and he sees that the man sitting riding in this chariot is reading from the scroll of Isaiah. And he asks him a beautiful question. He says, do you understand that? Church, don't underestimate the power of questions in the process of sharing Christ. Right? The way that they disarm and open up hearts to receive. The Spirit uses that. He goes, do you understand this? The man says, how can I unless someone explains it? You want to explain it to me? Well, yes, I do. And so he gets in the chariot and he takes the time to sit and walk through this passage and what it means and to share Jesus with this man. The man reads this passage and says, so is this about the prophet who wrote this or is this about Jesus? And he says, it's, a, it's about, or who, and, or who is it about? And he says, it's about Jesus and explains it. And the man has faith and we see that he actually ends up being baptized. Church, allow me just to, to give us just this, this plea, this, this prayer that I have, is that we would be a people who are this sensitive to God's prompting to have conversations with others and who are sensitive to that prompting and then who step out in that in obedience, whatever it might cost us, that we're a people full of gentleness and curiosity and questions that allow for conversations and that we're a people who then boldly talk about Jesus when those moments come. But I want us to land today on this man by no name, this eunuch. I have to be honest that, that as we get into this part of this, like um, at least to the first part here where we're pointing out the characteristics of this man or what this man's known by, like I gleaned almost all of this from Patrick Schreiner, one of our pastoral um, candidates here. He has a theology of Acts, he has a commentary on Acts, and he has a sermon on this, and there was just too much good stuff. If I were to quote him on it, I would be saying, and Patrick said way too often, right? So I'm just telling you, Patrick said, all right? And we're going to glean from this. We've got this man here that the Scripture gives no name to. Never in the story do we see Tim. 
John. He's nameless. We do know that he's a man. Over and over again, it refers to him as a man, and maybe that's not, it doesn't seem to stand out as too important to you, but, but it perhaps will in a moment. Because he's not only a man, but he's an Ethiopian. He's an African. He's a foreigner. He's a Gentile. But this matters in his acceptance into the temple for worship. Right, there was a court of the Gentiles, and the Gentiles could only come into that portion. They couldn't go beyond that into the temple. There were limitations to accessing the presence of God because he's a foreigner. He was also a court official and treasurer for Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. Candace is the title given to every queen of Ethiopia. The queen of Ethiopia was the one who had the power in Ethiopia. The, the king was like a godlike figure who couldn't be bothered with the daily organization and decisions for things. Sounds kind of peaceful. The queen made all the decisions for the nation. So this man works for the leader, or the, the queen, the power in the nation, and he's overseer of all of her money, her treasure. So in Ethiopia, this is a man of position, and a man of power, and a man of influence, and a man of wealth. He has access to all of this much like Simon. But he's not only a man, and he's not only an Ethiopian, and he's not only a court treasurer for Candace. It says he's also a eunuch. And this is the term that Luke uses the most to describe this man. Five times in this passage, he uses the term eunuch to describe him. What's so significant about this? Why is this the main term that Luke uses to describe this man? Well, because despite this man being a man, and despite him having um, position and status in his nation, he had been emasculated. He had been castrated to protect the queen from his presence. And so his sexuality had been taken away from him. And this matters. It's significant that he is a eunuch. Eunuchs could have no sons and no daughters which mattered to the, to the court, uh, right, to, to the king and to the queen, because it meant he could raise no children who would usurp the throne. He would have no mixed allegiance to his family and to the king or to the queen. His allegiance was fully there, and he couldn't ruin the, the line of descendants among them. But it was also shameful. He would have no son and no daughter, no children, and no descendants of his own. No hope that his name would live on. Not only could he have not have children, but he would have been considered effeminate. He would have been considered effeminate. Philo writes that eunuchs are, quote, neither male nor female, for they are incapable of giving and receiving seed. They're neither male nor female in their culture. Josephus urges his audience to drive off those who have deprived themselves of their manhood because their soul has become effeminate. Right, there was hatred towards this, like despised towards the eunuch. There was this idea that you, that from the Jews that you're not welcome here. You are an outcast of our society. You're not even welcome in the temple. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 1 says this, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. 
So this man had been disfigured. Literally what Deuteronomy says has happened to him. And so here's where we find him. We find him on a chariot, a eunuch, a man with much power and influence and wealth in his nation, but a man who's unable to have children, a man who would be viewed as effeminate, and a man who would have no place in the temple of the Lord. First, because he's a Gentile. Second, because he's been cut off. And we see him on a chariot in the desert, returning from a trip to Jerusalem, where he went to worship God. So at some point, in some way, he's heard about the Jewish God. And he traveled a long trip in the heat, not an easy journey, to Jerusalem to worship God. And when he got there, as a Gentile, he's not allowed past the Gentile court, but as a eunuch, he's not even allowed in the temple. He gets there, and there's this message, you can't come into the presence of God. You're not welcome where God is. This is not a place for you. You're an outcast out there. Stay away. Stay away. No matter how much power or how much position or how much money or how much influence he has, he could not buy his way into the presence of God. Simon had tried, and he couldn't. And it didn't do any good for the Ethiopian as well. We're not told he tried, but it wouldn't have worked. He's an outcast, left outside of the presence of God. I wonder how discouraging or disorienting this must have been for him. I wonder if he was going home, like, confused and wondering and racking his mind around this. And then God sees him. He came to Jerusalem, and he found in Jerusalem that he wasn't welcome in the presence of God. And that would be true if the presence of God was confined to the temple. But not only is the presence of God not confined to the temple, but the presence of God took initiative to seek him out in the desert. Much like the presence of God sought out Abraham in the pagan land, much like the presence of God sought out Joseph in the pagan prison, and much like the presence of God sought out Moses at the desert bush. Do you remember Stephen's sermon last week? This is what Stephen said. God has always gone into the desert place to seek people out. And here the man rejected at the temple finds the presence of God because God comes to him. And he does so by bringing him his word and by bringing him his servant, his messenger, Philip. And guys, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch have nothing in common. He shows up, Philip does on this desert road, he's told, go talk to that man, and they have nothing in common. They're not from the same uh, nation, they're not the same ethnicity, they don't have the same cultures, they don't come from the same religious backgrounds, or social statuses, or even sexualities. And Philip goes to him and asks him a question, do you understand what you're reading? And he invites him to sit and to talk. I'd like to highlight what he's reading. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. The passage happens to be from Isaiah chapter 53. And it reads this, verse 32 of Acts 8. 
Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. So he reads this, and then he says, who's this about? Like the prophet or someone else? I can picture Philip just smiling. Just like, I'm so glad you asked. That's a great question. Let me tell you, it's about Jesus. And the text tells us that with Scripture, beginning with Scripture, he told them all about Jesus. Right, this echoes what Stephen did last week in his sermon. It echoes what Jesus did. And in Luke chapter 24, on the road to Emmaus, he went to Scripture and he said, let me tell you about Jesus. And so he impacts for him, Jesus is the sheep who was led to the slaughter. That Jesus was the silent lamb before the shearer. That Jesus was the one who was humiliated. He was the sinless one who was denied justice. And he's the one whose life was taken away. And the text tells us um, that, that as this was going on, like, like the, I mean, the, the eunuch's hearing this. He's understanding this. And, and there's obviously more than this because in a moment he goes, hey, let me, let me be baptized. Right? So, so there's this full presentation of who Christ is and what it means to follow Christ. But, but hear this text for him. This is a text about the humiliation of the Son of God. Right? That the Son of God, the sinless one, faced the humiliation of being cut himself. His hands were cut with the nails, and his side was cut with the spear, and his head was cut with the crown of thorns, and his back was cut with the whip. The humiliation of the Son of God, naked and cut, left there exposed. And the Son of God, having no justice, though he was, had no sin. All of these themes that this man must resonate with. Right, This man who had faced the humiliation of at one point being stripped naked and cut. This man who faced the humiliation of having no children. This man who had recently faced the humiliation of going to the temple and being rejected. The very one who came to save him was one who was humiliated on his behalf. Who was cut in his place. Who was rejected so that he may be accepted. Church, allow me to read for you. Isaiah chapter 56. We don't know that the eunuch read Isaiah 56 that day. Don't even know if he had that portion of the scroll. But three chapters after what he did read, allow me to read for you what Isaiah says. Keep in mind the man on the desert road, the foreigner, the eunuch. Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 3, says this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people's. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose to do the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares this, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. 
do you hear this word of hope for this foreign eunuch? The foreigner, this Ethiopian, who could not go through the court of the Gentiles will not be removed from God's presence. This eunuch who had no seed is told, do not say you are a dry tree. To the eunuchs who come to Christ in covenant, who have faith in him, he says, I will give you a monument and a name that is everlasting, a name that is better than sons and daughters. To the man that Luke gives no name to, and to the man who can have no sons and daughters, God goes, I promise to give you an everlasting name that's even better than your own sons and daughters. He was kept out of the temple because he was cut. But God says in Isaiah, you will not be cut off from my presence. To the foreigner and the eunuch who come to him, who come to, he says, I will bring you to my holy mountain. I will come to you when you come to me, and I will escort you into my presence. I will be your guide, and I will bring you to my holy mountain so that there in my holy mountain you may stand and you may sacrifice, and I will accept your sacrifices, and I will hear your prayers. To the one who was told you're not welcome to bring that here, and to the one who was told your prayers won't be heard here, I will accept and I will hear you. Come to me. To the foreigner, come. My house is a house of prayer for all people, for I gather the outcasts. I gather the least of these. I gather those that no one else wants, that no one else values, that no one else treasures. Do you hear this hope, this freedom? Can can you put yourself in his shoes as he hears this truth, as Philip explains this for him? As he explains Isaiah 53, and knowing Philip likely had this in his mind as well, Jesus was rejected so that the rejected may be accepted. And Jesus was cut so that the cut may be healed. Jesus was silent before his accuser so that the prayers of the outcast may be heard and received. Jesus was refused justice so that the least of these may receive grace. And what is this man's response? It's not Simon's response. This man hears this, and he says, what do you know? Look, there's water. There's water, and you told me that, that if I have faith in Jesus, I should be baptized. There's water. What keeps me from being baptized? And we don't see Philip's answer in words. We just know that apparently he said, nothing. Nothing should keep you from being baptized. And they go down into the water and they baptize him. All all the understanding you have of Scripture has been in the last 30 minutes on this desert road. Great, let's go be baptized. You don't know anything else about any of the other prophets? No problem. You have faith in Jesus? Let's go be baptized. Because you don't have to come with knowledge and with wisdom and with understanding. You only have to come with empty hands to Jesus. You don't bring your money and you don't bring your influence and you don't bring your power and you don't bring anything else except emptiness to Jesus in faith. Let's go be baptized. And the eunuch, it says, is baptized into the faith. And when he comes up out of the water, God just takes Philip away. He disappears. And the eunuch's like, that was strange. Does, wait, does this always happen at baptism? I don't know. It's my first time to see this. He's never experienced but Philip's gone. And it says the Ethiopian eunuch goes on his way rejoicing, taking the gospel to Africa, to Ethiopia, 
to the ends of the earth. Guys, this is a story of hope for us. This is a story of, of hope for us. Because this is the very thing that all of us cling to and celebrate every week. Like none of us who are Christians have this thing figured out. None of us understand the scriptures perfectly and none of us have a sinless life. We don't make it from Sunday to Sunday without royally wrecking our lives of sin. What we celebrate and what we cling to is faith in Jesus for the needy and the least of these because that's us. And if you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, this is the very hope that you have to cling to. Like, like the, the hope of this passage for you is where have you come from and what have you done and what are you doing that Jesus won't meet you on your desert road and rescue you? That he won't save you, that he won't redeem you, that he won't hear you and accept you if you simply put your faith in him. Jesus suffered in your place. Put your faith in him and trust in him and be saved today. Be baptized. I'd love to talk to you about that after the service. And this is what we celebrate every week at communion. We get to celebrate at communion that Jesus' body was cut and that his blood was spilled so that outcasts like us might have life. In the words of the song we just sang, I am one of those who was dead and fully buried. And I still bear every stigma of decay. There's no way I can hide just what I've been through. Because when Jesus called, I came fresh from the grave. I am one of those who was a leper and contagious. The deformities and scars I have today. Yet while I was vile with sickness, Jesus loved me. And he healed, restored, and through and through remade. Though the world may number me among the foolish, I think Jesus Christ is all I need to know. Jesus suffered and paid blood to buy the lowest of the low. Hallelujah. Amen. That's me. Yes, I am one of those. So church, today we come as one of those. We come celebrate the blood and the body of Christ to save the outcast like us. And then when we leave here, we go into the streets to proclaim a Jesus who can save the outcasts in the streets. This is the hope you have, believer, that your sons and that your daughters and that your moms and your fathers, that your brothers and your sisters and those that you've been sharing Christ with who seem to be so far off from receiving this, they're not too far away for God's presence to meet them on their road. So go in boldness as Philip went and proclaim the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the word that you've given us here today. And I pray that you would encourage our hearts, you would fill us with thankfulness, and that you would send us with boldness through it. There's no one in this room too far away, and there's no one on the streets too far away that your presence cannot redeem. So Jesus, save Give faith. We beg this. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, 
please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.